This week on Friday Night History, feudal edge case. Why the definition of what makes a daimyo gets weird and blurry around the edges. This episode of Friday Night History was recorded before a live Twitch audience at twitch.tv slash riversidewings. Subscribe to catch future recording sessions, gaming streams, and more. Salutations, you fantastic denizens of the internet. This is Dr. Nairi A. Bakalian, and you are listening to Friday Night History, your favorite historical romp with your favorite history dyke. Feudal Edge Case. Here's the thing. The definition of a daimyo in the Edo period, 1600 to 1868, gets weird around the edges. There are some broad definitions applied to the term daimyo, but they aren't nearly as clear-cut as one might assume. So let's start with more or less the standard definition. Per Kotobank, an online encyclopedia and dictionary, a daimyo is a person who is recognized as an independent feudal lord by the Tokugawa shogun along the way, usually receiving a kanji from the ruling shogun's name to mark the affirmation or reaffirmation of that status, and who holds over 10,000 koku, bales of rice, in income, usually in the form of a landholding. Sometimes this is paid in the form of rice that has to be exchanged. Other times it's paid directly from the coffers of a parent domain in the form of money, but it's supposed to be a minimum of 10,000 koku. Now one might say, but hey now, Doc, what about a castle? But this isn't required to be a daimyo. There were lots and lots and lots of daimyo who neatly fall in the traditional definition of the term, who didn't have one. So this isn't an integral part of that, of that definition. You might also say, what about alternate attendance? Well, not all daimyo performed alternate attendance, so that also is not an integral part of the definition. So in short, we have one, shogunal recognition as daimyo, and two, at least 10,000 koku of income. You with me so far? Good. Because from here on out, it gets weird. The sheer number of exceptions and edge cases render the standard definition kind of laughably flimsy and hollow. First, we have the people who held over 10,000 koku, even way over 10,000 koku, but were not daimyo. The most notable case of this was the... Tayasu, Shimizu, and Hitotsubashi lords, the three Tokugawa cadet branch lords, who were collectively called the Gosankyo, the three lords. They resided in the shogun's castle. Uh, some of the names of these families can be seen in place names around the imperial palace today. Uh, they held great prestige. They held over 100,000 koku of income in the form of direct emolument, direct payment. But they weren't daimyo. Their lineages existed solely to provide backup heirs should the main shogunal lineage die out. 
This happened at the very tail end of the Edo period when Hitotsubashi Yoshinobu became Tokugawa Yoshinobu, the 15th and last shogun, in 1866. Secondly, there were people who held over 10,000 koku but were not daimyo. Bigger domains ruled by older daimyo families with deeper roots in the region, like the Date in the north or the Shimazu in the far south, had many cases of this, often but not always in the form of cadet branches of the daimyo family. The Katakura family is a good case in point, with a holding of... Uh, approximately 18,000 koku, the family was a date vassal clan and held Shiroishi Castle in the domain south as its residence. It nearly became an independent daimyo family in the 1590s due to the invitations of Toyotomi Hideyoshi, but his offers of recognition were refused by Katakura Kagetsuna, also known as Katakura Kojuro I, who chose to continue in service to the house of date, and I imagine if he had done anything otherwise, his sister, who had been his overlord Date Masamune's wet nurse, uh, the famous Katakura Kita, would never have let him hear the end of it. And while Katakura and several others like him in Date service held daimyo-level income and many of the trappings of a daimyo, they were not daimyo themselves. Third, there were daimyo who didn't actually have the traditional daimyo-level baseline income of 10,000 koku. A noteworthy case of this is the Ashikaga family of Kitsuregawa domain. This was a branch of the same family that was once the second shogunal dynasty back during the Muromachi era. Because of this exalted lineage, the then brand new Tokugawa shogunate gave it the status of a 100,000 koku domain, a decently sized domain, despite the fact that its land holdings centered on Kitsuregawa in modern-day Sakura Tochigi Prefecture in the northern Kanto region, never amounted to more than 5,000 koku, so about half of the traditional 10,000 koku uh, baseline. It was excused from alternate attendance duty, the duty by which the shogunate kept the daimyo and high-ranking bannermen, Hatamoto, the Kotai Yoriai Hatamoto, in Edo some of the year. But perhaps out of pride and wanting to keep up appearances with its peers, the Kitsuragawa family performed alternate attendance in Edo anyway. Which brings me to an even stranger case. That of daimyo who were simultaneously recognized as daimyo, but were also vassals of other daimyo. Tamura of Ichinoseki domain in modern Iwate prefecture is a case of this. Holding a modest but respectable 30,000 koku, the house Tamura was a cadet branch of the house of Date. It performed alternate attendance in Edo and was recognized as an independent daimyo family by the shogun. However, it was also a Date cadet branch and vassal family and held status within Sendai domain. To sidebar for a moment, Sendai Domain was unique in that it had a microcosm of the shogunate domain, Bakuhan Taisei, system in place. Sendai Domain was very, very large, uh, 625,400 koku, as I recall. And it was big enough that it was unwieldy to manage from one or two castles, as most other domains were managed in the Edo period. Thus, Date vassals held land holdings throughout the domain and performed alternate attendance 
on the Lord in Sendai, just as the Lord performed alternate attendance on the Shogun, his overlord, in Edo. This was a system that Date had used for centuries, dating back to before the Edo period's onset in the 17th century. Senior vassals held castles, called fortresses, yogai, to stay within the letter of the law that the shogunate had on castles, but many Date vassals, great and small, held land holdings throughout the domain, where they lived at least part of the time, and Tamura of Ichinoseki performed alternate attendance, or at any rate, maintained offices, in both Edo and Sendai. There were also situations where the definition involved some measure of overt or tacit hostility. Some people who were considered daimyo in the Edo period used to be vassals of other daimyo and did an end run around their overlords to get confirmed as daimyo by Toyotomi Hideyoshi or by one of the first three Tokugawa shoguns, um, but were not officially recognized in that status by their f former overlords. The most notable case of this is the house of Tsugaru in the far north of Honshu, who had once been vassals of the Nambu clan of Morioka domain, but became independent when they reached Hideyoshi and pledged fealty to him ahead of the Nambu daimyo. Hideyoshi, of course, didn't particularly care how the Nambu felt. Tsugaru made it to him first. The two clans were thus at odds for the rest of the Edo period, with multiple assassinations and other clashes marking their shared history, once even nearly coming to open war and requiring shogunate arbitration during what's called the Cypress Tree Incident, Hinoki Yamasodo. To this day, local wisdom has it that people from the old Tsugaru land, Aomori Prefecture, and people from the old Nambu land, Morioka, don't get along. There is also, rather famously, the case of the Inada family, which ruled Awaji Island from Sumoto Castle, and had been on track to become an independent daimyo when the Edo period began, and had to remain in what had been a temporary assignment as reinforcement to the Hachiska clan of Tokushima domain promised independence in exchange for imperial service in the Boshin War of 1868-69, the Inada clan made a bid for independence, but that bid was met by a crackdown and attack on its castle town in what's called the Kogo Incident. Inada Kunitane and his retainers got to very briefly set up as their own independent domain, but far north in the newly renamed and officially annexed Hokkaido, which was then under active colonization. These events were dramatized in the 2005 film Kitano Zeronen, Year One in the North. Yes, I know there's a zero in the Japanese title, but it's rendered in English, Year One in the North. Finally, there were people who held daimyo-level income and status, but were heading a branch of a much larger domain on whose administration, facilities, and personnel they relied, to the extent that they weren't meaningfully independent. Any domain you might encounter whose name ends in Shinden, like Yonezawa Shinden, or uh, Kochi Shinden, is a case of this. A domain whose tax base was made by clearing out new field, Shinden in Japanese, to make that magic minimum of 10,000 koku. 
There are many more cases in point here, and any serious consideration of history has to be more than just disconnected reciting of anecdotes. I'd be going on for multiple episodes if I did that, and we need to keep the show going. Suffice it to say, there are many, many, many edge cases that make a clear-cut definition to daimyo in the Edo period ring a little bit hollow, and I think it's a good lesson in questioning the limits and rigidity of terms that, in history, we tend to take for granted. So, what makes a daimyo? Eh, it depends. I'm Nairi, and this has been Friday Night History. Now, questions? Friday Night History is a weekly historical romp with me, your favorite history dyke, Dr. Nairi A. Bakalyan. Our theme is Buga Blue, written by Craig Friedrich, performed by the U.S. Army Blues, and available royalty-free at pixabay.com music. This and more is made possible by listeners like you. To support Friday Night History and the rest of my work, sign up today at patreon.com slash riversidewings or subscribe on twitch.tv slash riversidewings and catch a podcast recording. That's all for this week of Friday Night History. Next week, falconry, bushy birds, and how to disguise a military exercise in times of peace also coming soon to Friday Night History, a miniseries called Paradigm Shift. Join me as I welcome an old friend turned historian colleague to the podcast as we talk about historiography, teaching, puns, and the things that we as historians want the world to know. Hope to see you there. And remember, who you are and what lights your fire is worth fighting for. I'll see you around.